The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. All right, my name is Jeremy Wilson. I'm excited to be here with you guys this afternoon. Uh, me and my wife, Jenna, and our kids, Lee and Lo, have been up here for about three years now. Um, some of you guys I'm uh, very familiar with. I know some of you guys really well. Some of you guys I've never seen before in my life. I'd be happy to meet you and get to know you some while you're here this weekend. Uh, but today, I want to get into some theology and doctrine. And the reason I want to do that, the reason I chose this topic for our talk today was because the foundations of Christian living is in the gospel and in worldview and doctrine. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, whether you're in the church, whether you're maybe working directly in ministry, or whether you're living a very normal life like most of us will, doctrine is critical. Understanding the scriptures is critical. So today we're going to be looking at a lot of the Bible. And don't worry, I'll have it up on the screen, but you can also try to follow along with me in the scriptures. We're going to be looking a lot specifically at Romans chapter 3 through 5, as we're going to be talking about the doctrine of justification. Paul, the guy who wrote the letter to the Romans, builds a really awesome case and argument for the way that the doctrine of justification works. And in my opinion, the doctrine of justification is one of the most important doctrines that any Christian could ever know. Uh, there's a guy, you may have heard of him before, his name is Martin Luther. We'll talk a little bit about him today. He said that the doctrine of justification is one of the articles that the church stands or falls on. And he finds it to be incredibly important, and we're going to hop into that in just a little bit. But before we get started, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work through this doctrine together and we'll uh, see what the Lord has for us. So let's pray. <clears throat> God, thank you for today. God, I pray that we would learn from your scripture, that you would be kind to us in helping us understand your word. I pray that if I say anything foolish or ignorant or contrary to the truth, Lord, that you would help us forget it. And anything that is said or shared that brings you glory, Lord, I pray that we would remember it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, before we get into the doctrine of justification itself, I want to look, I want to talk about a question. Um, I'm not actually going to ask you guys. It's rhetorical. It's hypothetical. I'm going to answer it for us. But the question is, what happens when you die? You know, the, the title of this breakout is justification by death with a question mark. So like justification by death like that. And, and the reason that I have that title is I, I didn't actually come up with it. If you know anything about me, you know that I really love the theologian R.C. Sproul. Uh, I think I just said his name right. In most cases, people make fun of me when I say his name. Um, it's either Sproul, Sproul, Sproul. I'll, I'll say all three of them. But I really, really like him. And I was reading an article that he wrote and he was talking about his son and, and R.C. Sproul is a, is a very famous theologian. He's a professional theologian. For his living, when he was alive, what he did was studied the Bible and talked about it. That was all he did. He was a pastor for a while. He started a, a big organization called Ligonier Ministries. But all that being said, hopefully I don't fall through the floor here. Um, all that being said, he, he should have had children that understood answers to questions as simple as this. And it's really interesting. I'm going to quote him directly. He, one day he went to his son, his like elementary, late elementary age son, and he asked him, if you were to die tonight and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? His eyes lit up. 
and he looked at me with a shocked expression as if the question I had just proffered was the most stupid he had ever heard. With a simple shrug, he said, well, I would say he should let me into heaven because I'm dead. In other words, doesn't everyone who dies enter into God's redeeming presence? And that mindset is a lot more pervasive in culture, in the church, in life today than you would think. You know, when you hear it like that, you're like, uh, that's kind of silly. Why, why would anyone think that? But picture, and I don't want to bring up any bad memories, but I've been to a few funerals that are like this, where picture you're at a funeral of someone that you know wasn't following Jesus. Someone that you know were living their own life, rejecting the Lord and doing their own thing. And, and you go to that funeral and the conversation is often, they're in a better place. They're in heaven. They're with Jesus now. It's a pervasive thought. You know, the, the question of what happens when you die is also the first question that pops up when you say, what happens on Google? It's a genuine question. A lot of people, it's, it's probably the most asked question in human history as we contemplate what happens at the end of our life. Some people are very certain about the answer to that question. Some people are very scared about the answer to that question. Some people say that nothing happens. And when you die, that's it. It's the end. It doesn't matter how you lived because there's nothing after our death because we came from nothing. Some people say that you're judged based on the karma that you built up here on earth. So if you did a really good job in your previous life living as a sea turtle, when you come back to life, you'll come back as a human and it'll be really great. Or let's say you did a really good job living as a very poor man. Maybe you'll come back living in a richer lifestyle. I believe if you're a Christian, I think you believe this too, that we'll meet our maker face to face to be judged according to our lives. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it's good or evil. So we're going to have to make a case for why we deserve, just like that question that R.C. was asking his son, why would we deserve to live in eternity with Christ? Which is going to be really difficult considering what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's a very condemning passage. So if no one is good, and we have to make a case for why we are good, again, I ask, what happens when we die and we meet our maker? Well, our Catholic brothers and sisters believe that you may go to purgatory. And I'm not going to get into the details. This is going to be a very flyover of of Catholic theology on, on justification, but they believe that you'll go to purgatory to flesh out whatever merit, whatever goodness excuse me, Siri, whatever goodness that you didn't earn on earth. That time in purgatory may be five days or 500,000 years, but after you finish your time, after you finish building up the right amount of merit and are fully sanctified, thus being justified, those are big words that we're going to tackle here in a second, being allowed to enter into God's presence in heaven for eternity. I've mentioned two doctrines there, sanctification and justification. And the biggest difference between the views on sanctification and justification for probably most of us in the room as Protestants and then Catholics are that Protestants believe that you are 
being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, being brought to be more like God, being made more righteous by the Holy Spirit. But you are already, if you are in Christ, so if you've confessed Jesus as Lord, you are already justified by Jesus. Catholics believe that you must sanctify yourself. You're going to do good works throughout your whole life. And as a result, you'll justify yourself. You'll be justified at the end when you die so that you can get into heaven. This split was the main issue in the church in the 1600s. It's really important for us to look back at history and understand what's happened in the history of the church. It's funny, there, there was a guy who once said, uh, oh, church history? You know, I'd start with Billy Graham. And that's as far back as he goes when he thinks of church history. But the church has been around for thousands of years. And it's critical that we learn from it. So in the 1600s, the church ended up splitting, again, into Protestants and Catholics. And the main division was the doctrine of justification. There's a lot of other things that split the church back then. But that one was the one that was the most critical. Again, I mentioned him earlier. There was a monk by the name of Martin Luther. And you may have heard of him. Many of you may even really love his writings and have studied them, but he's famous for nailing his 95 thesis to the church door in his little German town on October 31st, 1517, which is the original reason for Halloween. Just kidding. It's not. But what it, it just so happens that that's Reformation Day. We celebrate Reformation Day here by dressing up in cool costumes. But this scene of Luther nailing these 95 theses to the church door, uh, I think it's surrounded by a little bit of mythology. Luther didn't go up to the door like marching with people watching. It's this epic thing and he boom, 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 hammers it on there. It was actually pretty chill. He wrote this 95 thesis and he went to that church door that also happened to be the bulletin board for the academics in the uh, monastery where he was studying. So if you had any paper or any writing or anything like that you wanted other academics to study and look at, you would take it and you would post it to this bulletin board. So that's what he did. So what was his 95 thesis about? What was he trying to bring attention to other academics? You know, Luther didn't intend for his 95 thesis to blow up in the way that it did, but because of modern technology of the day, the printing press, his 95 thesis was translated into German, from Latin, and spread across all of Germany, starting the Reformation as we know it today. And I wish I had time to go into all the details of the 95 Thesis, but the main thing, again, is looking at the doctrine of justification, the Catholic Church was selling something called indulgences. Okay, and so these indulgences were being sold, oops, excuse me, as a one-time purchase that you can make for your deceased loved ones. The church was trying to build, uh, like the Catholic church was trying to build a building called St. Peter's Cathedral, huge building. It's actually a very history-changing uh, building that they did end up building, building, and they didn't have the budget. They didn't have deep enough pockets in the moment to build this building, so they were selling these things called indulgences, and indulgences, in summary, were ways, again, that you could buy people's way into heaven. So how did that work? So... The idea is, in the Catholic Church, and this still is a theology today, is that there was this thing called the treasury of merit. And the treasury of merit is all of the extra goodness built up by the saints, by Mary, by Jesus. And, and the cop out there is that, you know, well, Jesus is the most holy person that has ever walked the foot of the earth, so the treasury of merit will never run out of merit. So they could always, always sell 
that merit or always give that merit to others. So the idea is the church was saying, if you buy this indulgence for your indulgence for your dead loved ones, we will credit them with enough merit that they go straight into heaven. It's kind of a crazy theology. It's a, it's a crazy idea. And I, I almost didn't believe it. And I looked in and, it, and it's been confirmed by the Catholic church today. And, you know, it's funny or it's interesting. Martin Luther didn't see the issue with these indulgences at first either. In fact, he said uh, that he wished his parents were already dead so that he could buy them for them and guarantee their way into heaven. And so he actually saw this is a good thing. But he started to quickly see how things could get out of hand. And he was reading through, he was an Augustinian monk. So he's reading through some of Augustine's works. And he also started reading in the scriptures And he started to see the issues with this way of getting into heaven. You see, the scriptures say that we are justified by faith when we become believers. We are made righteous by our faith in Jesus. And that we are sanctified, again, I mentioned this early, by the Holy Spirit and our walk with Christ to death and into heaven. In, In the Catholic view of the day and this day now, it fell on you. It was up to you. If you committed mortal sin, you had to make sure you confessed that sin before the next time you died. Otherwise, you wouldn't go. So Luther was an anxious, anxious man. He was constantly going. In in fact, he was accused of trying to uh, get out of all the work and the chores that he had to have because he was always in the confessional. The other priests were like, bro, come on. There's things you have to do. You can't be this anxious about the end. But he was. He was a very anxious man. And he knew that he was broken. He knew the state of humanity. He knew what Romans 3 said was true. We're in some ways, though, today, always trying to justify ourselves, to say that we're good, that we're okay. Culture today is pushing that the you are enough mantra, that you're perfect just the way you are, that you've been made just like you are, and there's nothing wrong with that, or you can change it, that's fine too, but you choose who you want to be. And Satan's doing that and trying to encourage all of us to be our own gods, just like he did in the garden at the beginning. So how do we respond to this view of justifying yourself, either through the cultural view or the Catholic view or whatever other view you want to say? What does the Bible say about justification? So you guys are smart I'm gonna, and, and you guys are attentive and you guys are able to read and follow along. So I'm going to read about 17 verses total from Romans 3 to Romans 5. And these are critical for this doctrine. So please try to follow along as, as, as Paul's making this argument. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 10. And these will all be up on the screen. And we're going to be jumping through this, and I'll say what verse it is, and you'll be able to find it in your Bible and follow along, and you'll be able to do it on the screen. So starting with Romans 3.10. We already read this. It says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. And we jump to Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.20 says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there's our first mention. No works will get us into heaven, will justify us. Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans three twenty four through 25 says, And we, 
We's not there in your Bible, but we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? It's included by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So it's at this point, Paul's going to shift and he's going to start using Abraham as his example of being justified or declared righteous by his faith. In Romans 4.3, it says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I'm going to read when that happened. It's in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. It'll be on the screen also. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But Genesis 15, 1 through 6, this is when Abraham was justified by his faith. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And this man, it says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed, he being Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it. God counted it to him as righteousness, his righteousness by faith. So to keep moving along, Romans 4, verses 4 through 5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent or followers of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. We're almost done. Four more verses. Romans 4, 20 through 21 says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So just like Abraham, if you are in Christ, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 5, 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So that was a lot of scripture. And what I want to do is I really want to encourage you guys to go back and read through Romans 3, 5 and and, and Look, through chapters three through chapter five and look at what Abram or Paul is doing through using Abram as this example. So, in, but what I want to do is I want to give five points of summary and this explanation of the doctrine of justification shows us. So number one, this explanation from Romans tells us all humans are sinners that are helpless to save themselves. Number two, 
Only the perfect work of Jesus saves and justifies sinners. Number three, only faith, not works, receives the saving effects of the work of Jesus. And so I want to park here for just a second, because this is where a lot of people get tripped up in the scriptures. If if you look in, if someone's uh, cares enough to look into this, if they believe that the Bible has contradictions, what they're going to do with this spot right here is they're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Paul says that it's only by faith that we are justified, what about in James chapter two? When James says, in James 2.24, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So what do you do with that? Well, one, you got to read scripture in context. Scripture is going to explain scripture. So we're going to look at the larger passage here from James chapter 2. Because it looks like, again, Paul and James are disagreeing. But when you actually look at it, James 2, 14 through 28, I'm sorry that I'm reading so much, but scripture is true, more true than anything I can say. So I'm going to read James 2, 14 through 28. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Also, faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have worth, works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so this is where it gets really important to understand context. Verse 21, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Whew, that was a lot. So what's this saying? There's two occasions happening with Abraham here. The first one was the one that we talked about, the covenant that God made with him. When Abram had faith in what God has said, and in that moment, Abram was justified. And then later, now that he is in faith in Christ, now that he's following Jesus, later, what does he have to do? God asks him to take that son who God made a promise to him with to give him as many offspring as the stars in the sky. Take that one son that you have now and go kill him. Go sacrifice him on an altar for me. And so what does Abram do? He does what God says. He goes and and the Lord stops him before he can kill his son, but in faith, he does these works. And so in that moment, the faith that he had produced the works that he needed to follow the Lord. And that is the life of the believer. We are first justified by faith. But what the case that James is making is, again, if you're walking around and all you're doing is saying, I have faith in Jesus, but you're not doing anything about it. You're not reading the scriptures. You're not giving to people. You're not preaching the gospel. You're not loving others. Then it's useless. You can believe all you want to believe. That's not the end. But we are, if we are 
doing as Abram did and Abraham did, if we are first justified by our faith and then we are again being proved to be justified by our works, then we're following Jesus. So number four, so, so again, in summary with that number three, there, it looks like Scripture's d- disagreeing with itself, but it's not. Number four, God in Christ receives all of the glory for this justification. So it's God's glory through Jesus that he gets for the justification. He is the one who did it. And this justification brings peace to the heart and the mind of the believer. So what does, and we're almost done, I want to look at quick three points of application here. What does knowing what the doctrine of justification do for the believer? I want to leave you with three things that should change in your life or change how you understand the gospel. Number one, justification provides absolute peace and assurance for the believer. Justification reminds us that Jesus has done all the work. It is done. There's no more work necessary for us to be saved if you're in Christ. And if you're like me and you're acutely aware of your own sin, you see how you fall short every day, almost every moment. And if my own justification were truly up to me, if I had to sanctify myself, I don't think I'd make it. I'd be terrified of judgment day. And in a way, of course, I still am because I will have to give an account for my actions on earth. And when I go to give that account because of what Jesus has done, I can say I've been justified by my faith in you, Jesus. We have assurance that Jesus has sealed us and will keep us to the end. Number two, justification provides current peace with God. Before we were with, excuse me, before we were in Christ, we were enemies with God. Our account with him was unsettled. And now in Christ, we know that there's nothing further for our debt with the Lord and all of our obligations to God have been met. So we have assurance of the end and we know now we are also at peace with the Lord. And three, justification gives all glory to God. A famous theologian once said, it is often a difficult thing to accept the grace of God. Our human arrogance makes us want to atone for our own sins and to make it up to God with works of super righteousness. But the fact of the matter is that we can't make it up to God. We are debtors who cannot pay, and that's what justification by faith is all about. And and we give that glory to God. And so what what I don't want you guys walking away from this is hearing is me um, slamming the Catholic Church or anything like that, but what I do want us to walk away with is seeing how easy it is for us to want to do it and save ourselves and how quickly we can ignore that Jesus has completed and finished the work. There are plenty of Catholic priests who believe in justification by faith. There are plenty of Protestant pastors who believe in justification by works with faith. But the scriptures are clear when they say that Jesus has done the work and we are justified by faith in the work that he's done. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.